This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady. But every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. The hollow earth, UFOs, aliens, and painting. Fluoride in the water, they spray us guys daily. When I talk about these things, they think I'm crazy. There's no escaping anymore, the evil that we're facing. Illuminati might control the sacrificing babies. The end of days, but anyways, my family thinks I'm crazy. What, they don't want to listen to you? No, they don't want to listen. They don't want to hear it. They're just like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy. You know, if I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? UAPs, EBEs, or MIBs. The three-letter agencies and black-budget programmers are sending a signal jam. Open your eyes and ask yourself, what's flying in the skies? Soldiers, sailors, tinkers, or spies? Weapons and words, a clever coercion into an untethered realm. Something's not still in the night. A state-sponsored boogeyman or a supernatural fright. Ryder Lee joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to discuss the truth behind Kenneth Arnold's UFO sighting and the flying saucer deception. I'm Mystic Mark. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Ryder Lee. That's what Bill Cooper always talked about in the mid-80s, which popularized the entire myth and in the legends that a contract was signed between the government and extraterrestrials in exchange for technology. Bill Cooper just added that it was Eisenhower that made the contract and sealed the deal. He's changed it just slightly. And, and Phil Schneider is a whole other story. By 1982, Benowitz then started contacting other UFO researchers like Linda Moldenhauer, John Lear, uh, Senators Harrison, Schmidt, and uh, began to spread this idea and these theories and these speculations regarding the Dulce base to others in the ufology community. And boom, UFO mythology that came directly from the NSA and what I believe was an intelligence agent and Myrna Henson and Air Force agents was born. All of this is covered and is very well documented. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and back again for his third time round. 
is Ryder Lee, the man behind Raised by Giants. Last time he was here, we were talking about JFK X, an excellent film he put together with the great Jay Widener. And today we are going to be diving down a very interesting rabbit hole. I'm excited. Ryder's the type of guy who sees what's going on in the world and takes it one step beyond. He goes with his uh, scalpel and he picks apart what most conspiracy theorists take for granted. So I am very, very excited to have Ryder on uh, for this analysis of the true origins of the flying saucer. So, And that might even be uh, mischaracterizing it. So without further ado, uh, Ryder, welcome back to the show. For folks who may be hearing about you for the first time, give us a, a brief introduction and then help us uh, segue into the topic we're going to be getting into today. First off, thanks so much for having me on again, Mark. Really appreciate it. It's good to see you. You're looking fancy and snazzy today. We're, we're kind of matching here today if you're watching the video version of this show. And yeah, thanks for having me on, man. A lot of people don't really want to dive into this topic because it really destroys their preconceived notions and ideas of what they think that UFOs and uh, flying saucers really are and we've let this phenomenon get so far out of hand that i one personally believe that it serves to make a lot of people easily fooled uh by scammers and fraudsters and grifters um that prefer the lie over the truth and really bring no evidence or proof of what they're talking about and this could mean that any group or individual or government could use the myth, the mythology of UFOs and extraterrestrials that may want to destroy or undermine our society through the deceptiveness and mis- and disinformation surrounding UFOlogy. And this current contactee movement that started with a gentleman named Samuel Eden Thompson that literally nobody knows about. Uh, it was from 1950. No one talks about because they've never even heard of him because the story was really overshadowed by Kenneth Arnold, which we're going to get in Kenneth Arnold and his sightings in 1947. But they were later on then overshadowed by the Betty and Barney Hill story in 1961. Just like no one really tends to talk about George Van Tassel, who was the first person to claim contact with the Ashtar Galactic Command in 1952, or George King from the Aetherius Society cult, or Dorothy Martin from the Secrets UFO cult in 1954. But this contactee community and movement has brought about what can really only be described as a mental illness that can, the ties and the origins of this can really be tracked back to the, the rise in the popularization of the extraterrestrial and UFO myth, which is a huge aspect of UFOlogy. 
that literally no one wants to talk about. And it's a huge issue, right? So, uh, yes, thanks for having me on. Uh, Mark, really appreciate it. And if people are interested, you just said that I could plug. So I'm going to do a, do a little plug. I, I won't plug until you tell me I can plug again. Uh, but uh, if you're interested in finding my content and my work and my research, you can check me out on YouTube at Raised by Giants and any and all podcast platforms or any of the other um, alternative video platforms as well. So thanks so much for having me. Really. Rock on. Yeah, and feel free to plug whenever you f- see best. Um, I do it sometimes. Thanks to the name of my show, it's uh, it's a little conversational, you know. But uh, but anyways, you said something that people might already be reaching for their phones. Hold on, rewind. What did he just say? UFO abductees are suffering from a mental illness. Let's start from the beginning. Let's go back to even before uh, the gentleman who coined the term. Well, let's say he was misquoted and the newspaper coined this term flying saucer. Since then, that's kind of been the um, carrot on the stick. Don't look over here. Look at this shiny dangling object that is the flying saucer, right? So where do we begin? How do we start? Uh, at the beginning of the timeline of this, uh, as you put it, this mental illness that is sweeping the nation in the 20th century. Well, it really all starts with uh, with Kenneth Arnold in 1947, but that is not where the phenomenon starts. The phenomenon tracks back probably at least hundreds of years in the past, some say thousands of years. But that's not what we're focusing on right now. We're not focusing on the phenomenon itself. We're going to be focusing on the uh, characterization and the label of what these things were called. And that started in 1947 with Kenneth Arnold. Now, they were shields, they were pillars. As you know, a lot of people describe them as flying chariots, in the past, but that is something completely different. And as we get along in this conversation, you're you're going to realize that Arnold he quoted he's quoted several times saying that what other people were seeing during that time, because he brought about an entire wave of sightings, other people claiming to see the same things that he said that he saw, but he never said that he saw a flying saucer. Never, not one time. And what he said that other people were seeing, he said that other people were seeing something completely different or nothing at all. And so that's just, you know, he's calling bullshit on these people back in the late 40s. And he's saying these people aren't seeing the same thing as, as what I saw or they're seeing nothing at all. Now, As I said, the phenomenon goes back farther, but we're talking about the title and the labelization of what these crafts are in the shape of the craft. And I can see people in the comment section now saying, oh, well, it goes back way farther than 1947, which it does. But again, they weren't called flying saucers back then. And Kenneth Arnold kicked off this entire idea and thought, 
behind uh, flying saucers. And I want to bring up a picture of Arnold for the people that are watching the video. Here is Kenneth Arnold. And a little background on Arnold uh, for people that aren't familiar with who he is and and what he is. He was a very well-respected aviator. He was a businessman. And later on, he was a politician. He was the first person in modern times. Now, take that as exactly what it is, modern times, to report a strange craft in the sky. So at around 3 p.m. on June 24th, 1947, Kenneth Arnold was piloting his uh, plane in the skies near Mount Rainier, Washington, searching for missing marine aircraft. And he witnessed a string of what he estimated to be nine uh, nine objects flying at around 10,000 feet. He said that they flew at amazing speeds of what he also estimated to be 1,500 miles an hour. Some people say 2,000 miles an hour. It's a back and forth thing, right? He said that the objects lacked tails uh, and they reflected sunlight. And after witnessing these craft, he landed his plane in Yakima, Washington, and told his friend Al Baxter about the sighting. Arnold then shared his story with other pilots at the time, and they said that maybe what he witnessed was military, experimental military aircraft or military missiles. Arnold wasn't so pleased with that explanation and not really being convinced that what he saw was experimental military aircraft, which we're going to get into here a little bit later because he comes out with a drawing of the craft that looks almost identical to what we now know as the B-2 stealth bomber, but that's here later. So not being convinced by the uh, explanations of what he saw by his friends and fellow pilots, he walked into a local news station and told his story to a gentleman named Nolan Skiff. Now, Nolan Skiff published a short article with the headline saying something like, impossible, but seen as believing. That story was then forwarded to the Associated Press for worldwide distribution. And that is where the term flying saucer was born. Now, as the story progressed and public interest became very popular, the the whole thing turns into a, a media frenzy. Now, when you look at Arnold's testimony, which he did a lot of interviews, a lot of radio shows, he never used the term flying saucer to describe the shape of the craft. He said it was bat-shaped, crescent-shaped, boomerang-shaped, uh, and he often sometimes referred to it with uh, like a pie pan or half-moon-shaped. Right? And Arnold ended up working very hard up until the end of his life in 1984 to combat the flying saucer narrative. So Arnold came out with sketches of the craft that he saw. And here's a picture of one of the sketches that he drew. Doesn't look like a uh, flying saucer to me. And it looks like exactly what he was saying that it was. Bat-shaped, boomerang-shaped. Well, even for folks listening, a picture of Batman's batarangs, like that's essentially the shape there, bat and boomerang-shaped. 
That's right. And that's but those that was his statements. And and what had happened was is Nolan Skiff, the journalist that published Arnold's initial story in the newspaper, said that Arnold cited nine saucer-like aircraft. The media took the saucer-like aircraft and ran with it and created a bunch of different headlines saying that uh, Kenneth Arnold had spotted saucer-shaped craft when Arnold literally never referred to the shape of the craft as saucer in shape. Bat-shaped, crescent-shaped, boomerang-shaped, half-moon-shaped. And uh, he, oh, in one of the interviews with the United Press, he even said that he said that it was half moon shaped and it was an oval in the front and a convex in the back, just like his sketch depicts, right? So this became such a frenzy topic with everyone reporting these strange craft now. And like I was mentioning in the beginning of the show, Arnold said that what everyone else was seeing and all the other reports that were coming out, other eyewitnesses, whatever they were reporting was something else or nothing at all. And another quote from Arnold was that he doesn't feel like they should be labeled flying saucers. It should be labeled a strange type of aircraft instead of flying saucers. So in April of 1950, Arnold comes out and spills the beans, right? He's like on this whole misrepresentation and this whole misquote. Arnold said, in this interview in 1950, the objects that he witnessed fluttered like they were boats on really rough water. And this next part is the most important part of all and where the misquote and the mistranslation came from. He told news reporters in the beginning that when the saucers flew, they flew like a saucer being thrown across the water. And the newspapers printed it as the shape of the craft was saucer in shape. When all Arnold said was that they flew like saucer skipping across water. It's probably the biggest misquote and misrepresentation of what Arnold said of all time. Right? And then... Well, and it also, it, it, it underpins an incredible error on the part of all of ufology moving forward because now everybody is looking for flying saucers and trying to explain the physics of what essentially is a non-existent object when in fact, you know, they've taken the physics of the craft that they saw and reversed it like, oh no, instead of, them knowing that this thing skips along whatever's up there, like a saucer skipping across water, let's make them think that it's a saucer, you know? And, I mean, just the image of a, that type of object, the boomerang crescent-shaped object kind of, like, oscillating in that way, I mean, it defies our understanding and maybe rightly so maybe they need to cloak these sorts of things so that people can't reverse engineer this technology that's my thought that's right and 
you would think whenever Kenneth Arnold came out with the drawing, here's a picture without Kenneth Arnold in it for the people that are watching the video portion of the show. You would think that whenever he came out with the drawing of these crafts, that it would just end all the flying saucer talk. But it didn't because it became such a frenzy topic and the the idea and the thought of the shape of the craft being a flying saucer had already been singed into the mind of people that there was really no turning back on it, right? Especially when you get into what the term flying saucer actually was. Because this is a mind blower right here. Very perplexing and the implications of it the, even the people that know about this, which I've talked about it on a few people's shows and I've done it on my show. So some people are definitely aware of it. And there's also a, a book that's written all about this stuff uh, by a gentleman named Chris Albeck. I've had him on my show a couple of times. He's a very uh, interesting. He's done a great research. He's written an entire book about this entire subject, Kenneth Arnold and his, and his sightings and what the term flying saucer actually was before it was associated with UFOs. His name's Chris Albeck. He's got a book on Amazon called Saucers, right? The flying saucer, <coughs> excuse me, the flying saucer name was first originally associated with a sport that predated Arnold sightings by over 60 years which was called trap shooting, which was started in the late 1800s as a way to train hunters and shooters where they would release live birds from cages and use them as target practice. And then that was later changed to these little clay flat discs named flying saucers by a man named Charles Lewitsky in 1880. He dubbed these little clay pigeons, that are what they're now called as clay pigeons, he dubbed the name Flying Saucers. So I hope you guys see where this whole thing is going, and I have a picture. And I can I'll picture seeing this in iconic movies. I forget if it's like Meet the Fockers or one of those comedy movies where they go trap shooting and... I think everyone's seen this at some point in time, whether you're a hunter or sportsman or not. Exactly. And this is what the flying saucers look like. They look like a general depiction of the popular UFO. So by the early 1900s, flying saucers had become a ridiculously popular sport. There were competitions, championships. There was newspaper headlines uh, saying that the, the skies of North America were covered in flying saucers flying through the air and exploding and falling to earth, which is the exact same type of phrases that were used decades later with Kenneth Arnold's sightings, like the Roswell sightings, uh, the uh, all the sightings in the, in the 50s. It's not just... A coincidence, right? So by the 20th century, the name Flying Saucer had become such a commonplace name being used for over two decades beforehand. The, the sport of Flying Saucers had become 
so popular, it was adopted by the Olympics. In 1916, the number of participants in the sport of flying saucers was 600,000 people in the U.S. They all knew the term flying saucers and called these little clay pigeons flying saucers. The military even adopted the flying saucer sport to train their soldiers in target practice in the beginning of World War II. You have to put two and two together there on that one because that's like literally what has happened in modern times. The military has taken over the UFO narrative. It's being ran by, the military has been ran by three-letter organizations. So the exact same thing happened before World War II. The military adopted this flying saucer sport, and then it fell out of uh, popularity within the public. So war war permeated, trap shooting uh, started to die off with people losing interest after the military had taken it over. So we have these clay pigeons being called flying saucers, since 1880, hundreds and thousands of people being familiar with the term flying saucers, the military adopting the term and the practice in the mid-40s during World War II, and two years after the war ends, we get the term flying saucer, but under a different context. It's related to something completely different. So what we have here, Mark, is the entire subject of ufology is based on a fallacy. Ufology has been using the shape of the round disc when it was never described by Arnold as a disc or a flying saucer. So we've had the shape wrong this entire time for 77 years. We've essentially been telling and regurgitating a huge misrepresentation, a misnomer of what Arnold said that he saw. And I've put the challenge out on my show. I've put the challenge out on other people's shows. that has been uh, gracious enough to have me on. For anyone to find a quote of Arnold saying that the shape of the craft was saucer in shape, not what other people said that he said, not what other people quoted him as seen, because they obviously got it wrong and misinterpreted his words. But find me a quote of Arnold himself saying that the craft that he witnessed on June 24th, 1947, was a flying saucer. You can't. And you won't because it doesn't exist. The, the flying saucer mythology is a lie. It's a misnomer. It's a misinterpreted quote by the newspaper reporters, journalists, and researchers, and is still the most popular symbol of ufology to the very this very day. Even though it's not called flying saucers anymore, flying saucers are the basis and the root of modern ufology. Right. Every conference, every UFO documentary, YouTube thumbnails, I've even done it, all use the flying saucer art when it's a lie. 
It's never what they look like. And you'll find uh, you'll find quotes that from Arnold saying, "Oh yeah, the shape of the craft was bat shaped, boomerang shaped, shaped like a pie pan, half moon shaped." But never once did Arnold say that the shape of the craft was saucer in shape. Never, he didn't say it. He said that the way that the craft moved was like a saucer skipping across the water, not the shape of the craft. And it's just a coincidence, Mark. I might have forgot to mention this earlier, but George Lewitsky, the gentleman that created the sport of flying saucers, his little clay pigeons, came up with the term flying saucers uh, 67 years before Kenneth Arnold, and he said the exact same thing that Kenneth Arnold said. He said that he got the idea uh, of calling these uh, these clay disc flying saucers from watching kids toss saucers across the water. Hmm. Make that one make sense. <laughs> well, and help me wrap my head around, I mean, you mentioned that it looks like the B-2 stealth bomber, but if these are moving on uh, through the air in this sort of like kind of up and down fashion as as you would see a rock or a disc skipping across water, do you think that that can tell us something about what's really going on here? Am I putting the cart before the horse you know what? What do we uh, what do we think about the actual shape and physics of what Kenneth Arnold saw? Because it it seems like it, they've, as you put it, spent a lot of time letting people just uh, fantasize over this flying saucer image, and then, as you pointed out too, now conveniently nobody even calls them UFOs anymore. They just, you know. Uh, overnight decided we'll call them UAPs now because of the Tic Tac phenomena, which, you know, I'm sure there's questions about that whole situation as well we could get into. But uh, when it comes to the actual shape and the physics of these crafts, it seems to fall in line more with conventional aircraft or maybe something that has capabilities that are still, uh, you know, not declassified, you know, physics capabilities that these planes have that we're not aware of, possibly? I mean, that's a possibility. Uh, I mean, and there's no proof that uh, what Kenneth Arnold witnessed was a military craft or experimental military aircraft. I was just putting two and two together by the shape of uh, what he drew looks suspiciously like a B-2 Stealth bomber. It's not exactly it. That's just my personal feelings and, and uh, personal research on it because it looks pretty identical. And maybe this craft was a prototype of the B-2 stealth bomber. You know, maybe it was the first rendition of that. And then they used the flying saucer narrative to 
cover up the fact that they were uh, advanced military experimental aircraft that they hadn't quite figured out yet. And maybe that is the reason why it's moving like a saucer uh, skipping across water is because they haven't quite figured out the pulsion systems of this uh, experimental craft. I just put those in relation together in the craft that Arnold seen being like the B-2 stealth bomber because they look pretty similar. Mm -hmm. Not that it's a fact of what he actually saw, but Kenneth Arnold's friends and fellow pilots during that time, that's what they said. They were like, you just saw some experimental military aircraft. And we're also going to get into that with uh, what Paul Benowitz was seeing in uh, New Mexico as well. He was seeing experimental military aircraft over Kirkland Air Force Base. And then they brought in these Air Force special agents to convince him that what he was seeing was extraterrestrial craft. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that they could have used the flying saucer narrative to throw people off track to getting getting them looking for something that never existed in order to effectively cover up really what's happening. I tend to think that that's more often than not the explanation for some of the more sensational and harder to believe conspiracy theories, alien-related or otherwise, uh, even aliens themselves, you know, that it seems like there could be something even deeper going on there. And uh, you mentioned some abductees. Kenneth Arnold wasn't abducted. He was just an eyewitness. Um, so maybe those are two entirely different instances that have been lumped together for this purpose of creating a smokescreen around military activities. Um, I know previously you were looking into all the stuff with MK Ultra, so I'm curious about the overlap that might have come about when doing this research, if there's anything that uh, reminded you of what you learned about MK Ultra. It seems like that's what's going on, but uh, but yeah, where do we go next from Kenneth Arnold? How does this flying saucer story really start to unravel beyond what we've already talked about? Well, uh, Kenneth Arnold actually had several sightings after his initial sightings that a lot of people don't really get into. They just want to sensationalize the first sighting, but he had uh, many other sightings. So some people report that he had eight sightings after his initial sighting. Um, Some people say that he had 11 sightings. His second sighting was just a month after his first sighting in July of 1947, where he was flying his plane from Idaho to Oregon and saw a cluster of about 20 to 25 brass-collared objects that he said looked like ducks. And these ones appeared to be round and rough on the top. He said that they flew in like a cluster, more like blackbirds than ducks. But according to Arnold, they weren't ducks. Hmm. (laughs) And um, apparently Arnold had taken footage of this event and 
those people that had seen it said that they were ducks and that they were birds and um, the footage has gone missing, just, just disappeared into the ether, never to be seen again. And uh, I want to see it because it was probably the best footage of ducks that, that we have ever seen or anybody has ever captured, right? So <laughs> it looks like a duck, acts like a duck. It's probably mm-hmm. a duck, right? Quacks like a duck, it's a duck. So it was third sighting after the ducks were in uh, 1949, where Arnold said that he saw two craft uh, flying under his plane on the um, uh, close to a, a mountain in California. The fourth one was in 1950 and was apparently uh, a sighting that his wife also seen a craft in the sky and. Uh, she ends up confirming Arnold's sightings. The fifth one was in 1951. So he seems to just con- continue to see his craft every year after his initial sighting. You know, it just kind of seems like it's a aggregoric thing. And he probably seen the uh, the popularity of it and was like, oh, how do I outdo myself from the previous one that I've seen? It's like making a sequel to a movie, you know? You want to up the ante of the sequel, but the sequel never really compares to the original. Let me ask you this. You said he was a, uh, a businessman, an aviator and and a politician. Did these sightings happen after he was retired? Did these happen before he became a politician? When did these, you know, like how did, how did these sightings play into his life? And also, are there any indications prior to these sightings that he might've been, you know, unwell, mentally unstable, those sorts of indications? No, no one really thought that he was uh, unwell. He was a very well-respected man. I just think that the publicity of his first sighting, his initial sighting, got the best of him, and then he just started taking everyday objects and turning them into UFOs. He had a fifth sighting, which was in... 1951, and these were before he uh, became a politician. He became a politician later on in his life. Uh, But in 1951, he saw uh, a craft in the sky near uh, Santa Rose um, in in Nevada where lights appeared uh, close to the ground, and there was a red and, and yellow glow to them. And what is red and yellow from the ground uh, that you can see from a plane that's on the ground? Those headlights, bro. It's headlights. You're seeing some headlights and you're just making things up and attributing it to the the UFOs of your uh, very first sighting. The sixth sighting was in 1952 in California where Arnold claimed that he came into contact with a craft, which he claimed was totally transparent, stating that he thought that they were alive uh, this is where he starts to change change up his beliefs and his ideas surrounding what the craft are. He claims that they are biological entities that can change shape at will. And uh, in 2017, his daughter, Kim Arnold, uh, came out and made a statement about uh, his sighting, stating that Arnold believed that the craft could change density and they were biological organisms and he would refer to them as jellyfish which i thought that this was really interesting because kenneth arnold back in 1952 started referring to these craft as 
Jellyfinch. And right as I'm doing this research, looking into all this stuff, is right when the Jellyfish UFO dropped by uh, Jeremy Corbell on the UFO Revolution 2B documentary in the Jellyfish UFO. I was like, wow, this isn't a coincidence. I don't know what it is, but that's wild. I was literally reading that uh, that article of Kenneth Arnold preparing for my show on my YouTube channel, Legends of Ufology, surrounding Kenneth Arnold. And I'm reading, he started calling these craft jellyfish, and then the jellyfish UFO dropped. I'm like, what is going on here? Now, the seventh sighting happened in Idaho in 65. Not a lot of information on that one. Uh, the, the eighth and final sighting came to us in July of 1966, which happened in Idaho Falls, where apparently hundreds of residents of the city apparently saw a strange craft in the sky, including Arnold. They uh, observed a what they described as an enormous triangular craft, a tremendous height in the sky, which turned out to be a inverted pyramid-shaped nylon balloon, which was released the week before, which this gets into Sean Kirkpatrick, which is the, the head of Arrow, just came out in that article and said that uh, pretty much all of the sightings since the 40s have been related to military uh, technology, military drones and military R&D that has been misrepresented as UFOs and extraterrestrial craft. So that's what was going on. And I kind of, you know, relating that to today's times because it's uh, really important. The What's really been happening is just people are seeing drones, they're seeing balloons, they're seeing... Uh, everyday man-made objects and they're thinking that it's uh, UFOs and extraterrestrial craft when it's not. And if we fast forward a little bit, we get into Paul Benowitz and all the events that surround him in 1979. Uh, Paul Benowitz was a, are you familiar with the Paul Benowitz story? Refresh refresh our memory. I have heard of Paul Benowitz, but I don't know what he's associated with other than what you've already said in this conversation. So Paul Benowitz was born in Kansas. He earned a bachelor's degree from Arizona State. During World War II, Benowitz was a radio electronics engineer for the Coast Guard. He worked as an engineer for San Francisco CBS station and a radio station in Tucson. Um he married his wife in 1947. Around 1953, Benowitz moved to New Mexico and started working in sales. He later uh, began his own industrial sales company in 1966. He uh, acquired the rights to a um, humidity sensor from uh, the, uh, National Laboratories in uh, Arizona. He founded a uh, a scientific company called Thunder Scientific, a small business that he operated with his wife, Cindy, that would later develop high-tech instruments for NASA and the Air Force. So during the 1970s, Paul Benowitz became a member of the Arizona Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, which was a civilian UFO investigation group. 
And by the mid-70s, cattle mutilations had became very popular and associated with UFOs. So in 1979, U.S. Attorney uh, R.E. Thompson and U.S. Senator Harrison Schmidt held a public meeting about cattle mutilations. The meeting was attended by uh, supposedly around 80 people. One of the attendees was Paul Benowitz. Now, at this meeting, at this cattle mutilation meeting, it was pretty much ran by the FBI. And this is where the targeting of, well, a lot of people say the targeting of Benowitz by the government agents first happened because it was at this meeting that Paul Benowitz was introduced to a highway patrol officer named Gabe Valdez, who was investigating these incidents, which is very important for you to remember uh, for later on in the story because it's connected. So Benowitz listed July 1979 as the beginning of a personally funded study into UFOs because Paul Benowitz reportedly began filming strange lights and recording unusual radio signals over Kirkland Air Force Base. So Paul Benowitz would go out into his back patio. Kirkland Air Force Base was only like a half a mile away. He could see everything that was going on. He said that he would see these strange lights, mainly two bright lights, slowly lift up off of the ground and then zip around, go in back behind the mountain. So common sense and critical thinking would tell you that if you're seeing something strange over a, a military base, then it's probably the military, right? Anyone could tell you uh, it's the military. You know, like I was mentioning earlier, these people that are seeing these weird and strange things over a military base, it's more than likely the freaking military. So Paul being a radio expert, very well versed in radio technology. He was a World War II veteran using uh, technology for the Coast Guard. He decided to try and listen into uh, some communications and radio signals uh, from Kirkland Air Force Base and trying to figure out what these strange lights were and what he was seeing. He was trying to figure out if the military knew anything about it, right? So he decoded a bunch of these transmissions on his own, and he put together that it was about technology and that the technology wasn't from here. So this began his journey into the extraterrestrial realm. So in 1980, I believe in October of 1980, Paul Benowitz contacted Kirkland Air Force Base to give his report of his findings, like any good citizen would do. Right, you're seeing some strange stuff. It's happening around the military base. You're getting some strange recordings from your radio equipment that you have set up in your antenna above your house. You're a radio engineer. You're going to try and contact the military base where you're seeing this stuff to see if they know anything about it and maybe give them a briefing. Right. So in 1980, Paul Benowitz briefed uh, Kirkland Air Force Base on what he was capturing and what he was finding. The military personnel possibly thought that maybe it was a Soviet threat or another country or someone was planning to possibly invade the base to figure out more about what Paul Benowitz had and make sure it wasn't a threat. 
They put him in contact with a man, with a man named Richard Doty. Richard Doty was an AF OSI Air Force Office of Special Investigations. And Paul, not really knowing what he had because he didn't analyze the footage properly, he didn't analyze the recordings that he had properly. Richard Doty going to his house, examining the footage that he had of these strange lights and the uh, uh, translated uh, uh, communication radio transmissions that he had. Richard Doty figured out pretty quickly that after going and seeing this stuff, that what he had was top secret radio transmissions from the Air Force base. That it didn't have anything to do with extraterrestrials. The footage that he had was top secret experimental aircraft that the Air Force was working on. But Richard Doty came in and convinced him that it was extraterrestrials and that it had to do with extraterrestrial craft. Now, he didn't outright just tell Paul Benowitz this. He he would just kind of plant a little bit of seeds, right? He'd be like, oh, Paul, this you got some pretty good stuff here, Paul. It might be extraterrestrials. You may have you may have some communications with uh, extraterrestrials at the base. You might be getting extraterrestrial craft on that video, right? That it could possibly be from extraterrestrials and UFOs. And with Paul being a World War II vet, because he worked in radio communications for the Coast Guard during World War II, it was easy to convince Paul to keep quiet, to shut up about it, right? Like, shh, Paul, buddy. Buddy old pal, you owe it to your country not to say anything about this to anyone. Right? Keep all this information to yourself. But it wasn't just Doty that was doing this. See, I don't put a lot of fault on Richard Doty. Richard Doty was just doing his job, right? It was all the Air Force generals. They were all in on it. Grand Paul Benowitz briefing to the Air Force. After Paul showed this footage that he had captured of this strange craft, which was a top secret, keep in mind, it was a top secret experimental military Air Force aircraft, a Brigadier General stood up and said, Paul, you got some pretty convincing evidence there, bro. What would you like the Air Force to do about it? And Paul replied with that he wanted a grant. Paul wanted a grant to continue to study UFOs on the base. And he wanted a grant to continue his contact with aliens that he claimed that he had. The contact with aliens thing really threw the Air Force off guard. Right? And this is where it gets super freaking sinister and uh, really crazy but if you have any questions uh, before we get into that uh, let's uh, roll with those alright ladies and gentlemen we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors the hit kit the number one way to get lit go and check out the hit kit he's got some amazing gadgets and gizmos for you whatever you're smoking on in the states where it's legal of course Take it up, roll it up, put it in your head kit, and trust that it'll be there when you get back to it. It'll even be safe from maybe uh, detection, let's say, <laughs> and also uh, it'll surely 
be away from little ones, right? So, yeah, keep your bud, whatever you're smoking on, in your hit kit. Go and get yourself a hit kit today. The hit kit on Instagram or hitkit.us and use the promo code crazy at checkout. And uh, yeah, folks, that is our sponsor. I love the hit kit. Uh, of course, you know, use responsibly. Uh, it's really for whatever you're smoking on. So tobacco, cannabis, anything. Uh, I don't care. But I live in a legal state, so I figure it, it's uh, implied, but I forget to say that. But yeah, you know, obviously the hit kit uh, is something that is cannabis adjacent, but not necessarily. Um, anyways, that's our sponsor. We love them. Use the promo code crazy and uh, we're going to go to some dynamic ads if you want to hear every episode of the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast in full ad free go over to the patreon or the Substack, and you'll hear an extra 45 minutes of this conversation with Ryder lee uh so we'll be right back after this quick break thank you for tuning in I'm at the edge of my seat. I'm ready to get into it. I've been I've been trying to keep track of names and and important figures for questions, but uh, no, keep keep going, brother. Okay, so I'm gonna try and pull up a picture of Paul here really quickly for the people that are watching this on video. This is a picture of Paul Benowitz. Here is a picture of Richard Doty. People are very, probably very familiar with Richard Doty. So what had happened was Paul was picking up these signals from Kirkland Air Force Base. He didn't really know that that was the case. So what had happened was the NSA parked a vehicle across the street from Paul Benowitz's home and would directly beam radio signals into Paul's antenna on top of his house to make Paul believe that he was in contact and in communication with extraterrestrials and that he was getting and receiving and seeing the things that he thought that he should be seeing. The NSA broke into Paul Benowitz's house replaced his computer with an NSA-modified computer. The computer has software on it, had NSA software installed into the computer to decode the messages that were being sent to Paul in the way that they wanted Paul to see them. This is how far the myths and disinformation has gone to bringing myths and disinformation surrounding extraterrestrials and UFOs. The NSA broke into Paul's home and replaced his freaking computer with an NSA-modified computer to make him believe that he was getting messages and receiving messages from extraterrestrials. And in all of these messages that Paul thought that he was receiving from extraterrestrials, which was really the NSA, 
is a lot of the exact same theories and a lot of the exact same things that are still being regurgitated to this day, which is all lies and made-up nonsense from the NSA. The messages said that the extraterrestrials were from a planet with no water, that they're here for our resources, that they're here to take over Earth, and that they only trusted Paul because Paul was the chosen one. How many channelers have we heard uh, talk about this? How many of these UFO cults have they received information saying that they're the chosen one and that only they can disseminate this information from extraterrestrials? It's the exact same freaking thing, right? And all kinds of other stuff, which, again, you can research it and look into Project Beta. It details all of the things that the NSA was communicating to Paul Benowitz about extraterrestrials and are still all regurgitated into the community to this very day. And it's completely and utterly made up by NSA agents. But it gets even worse. If that wasn't bad, if you didn't think that was bad, it gets even worse. Okay, so... In May of 1980, state police in New Mexico received a report from a woman calling herself Myrna Henson. She was describing a story involving extraterrestrial aliens, bright lights, and herds of cattle. Now, the police then referred her to a colleague in Dulce named Gabe Valdez. Now, we know who Gabe Valdez is. He was the person that was introduced to Paul Benowitz at that cattle mutilation conference, right? Which then Gabe Valdez then referred the Myrna Henson case to Paul Benowitz. So on in May of 1980, Myrna Henson and her son traveled to Albuquerque, New Mexico to meet with Benowitz. They stayed in his home. Henson explained to Benowitz that on May 5th, 1980, while she was driving with her son near a, um, a place in New Mexico, they had witnessed two large silent objects approximately the size of a Goodyear blimp and looked like a Goodyear blimp hovering over a meadow. Looks like a Goodyear blimp. Flies like a Goodyear blimp. It's probably a freaking Goodyear blimp. It's just like Kenneth Arnold in the ducks, right? They look like ducks, quack like ducks, move like ducks. They're ducks. They then contact a gentleman named Leo Sprinkle, which was a psychologist and a professor from the University of Wyoming who had been investigating and looking into UFO contactees and, uh, and abductees and uh, reports of strange craft. Benowitz arranged for Sprinkle to fly to Albuquerque to hypnotize Henson. When Sprinkle arrived, Henson and Benowitz, this Myrna Henson lady, uh, convinced Sprinkle to conduct the regressions in his car that is parked inside of his garage with the windows being covered in thick aluminum foil, right? Paul's literally out of his mind at this point, which I don't freaking blame the guy, right? You got the NSA right across the street from your house stalking you 
beaming signals into your antenna in your home, making you believe that you're in contact with extraterrestrials, which he didn't know. He didn't know that it was the NSA. He thought that he was legitimately in communication with extraterrestrials. You got the Air Force telling you that you're right about the aliens, but you can't tell anyone. You're going to go a little insane. So Sprinkle decided to he decided to regress this woman in the in the tinfoil car in uh, Benowitz's garage. And all of the regression sessions pretty much form and turn into the mythology of the Dulce base. I don't know if you're familiar. Are you familiar with the Dulce base in New Mexico with Phil Schneider and uh, this contract between extraterrestrials and the military to create this deep underground military base to create uh, extraterrestrial human hybrids and vats and the babies and cloning and like all that stuff. I'm sure the listeners are familiar, but this is where the mythology starts because Paul Benowitz had been going out to Dulce and he had gotten uh, photographs and, and some video of uh, top, secret military activity that was happening in uh, Dulce. So they sent this Myrna Henson lady in there to completely get him off track with making him believe that it's extraterrestrial. So Sprinkle decided to regress this uh, woman and under hypnosis, uh, Henson reported these recollections of getting abducted and being taken to this underground uh, base uh, with um, body parts and vats and all these tanks and uh, humans being experimented on. And uh, she also claimed something about Roswell, though Roswell had not been cemented in and connected to the town uh, with UFO folklore yet. And that was uh, no one had made that connection in UFOlogy, which is a perfect setup for Bill Moore's book on Roswell called The Roswell Incident just a few months later in October of 1980 right here which was all government mis- and disinformation surrounding the Roswell event and the Roswell crash, which this book popularized the myth of extraterrestrial craft. No one talked about the event until this book came out. Well, that's a big misnomer that I think we talked about the first time you were on the show, unless someone else had talked about it with me. But uh, yeah, Roswell really wasn't even a thing until 20 or 30 years after it had occurred. And you know, when you think about that, it's like, you know, of course they can roll out some little story like that and make it out to be something much bigger than it actually was. You know, even thinking about the context of when it took place, the isolation of a place like Roswell, New Mexico in that time period, they could make up anything going on over there and, and, you know, you'd probably even find some people that would take a paycheck to go and play your, your little story and, and make up a bunch of lies. So it's really, I love how we're undressing ufology and the his, this false history we've been given, because really it shows how there is a secret history 
going on, a second history, as some authors have called it. America has, you know, two histories, this public-facing one and this very private, secret one that we are really uh, getting into right now. So, But when you said Leo Sprinkle, I'm like, first of all, that name alone should raise red flags no matter where, no matter where you find it. Leo Sprinkle, who names their child that? <laughs> right, and you're totally right about the Roswell event. It literally did not become popular until Bill Moore's book, mm. The Roswell Incident which was all filled with government myths and disinformation of a uh, crashed extraterrestrial craft. And Bill Moore got up in front of the MUFON conference in 1979 and tried to tell everybody that it's all fake, made-up myths and disinformation from the government, government agents like Richard Doty, and they booed him off of the stage. They booed this dude off of the stage for trying to come out and say that all this stuff is made up nonsense. They didn't want to hear it. And that whole thing with, because uh, we're going to get into a little bit about more here in a minute, about how the lore has taken on a life of its own. And, and Paul Benowitz going to these other people and telling him, telling them all of this mis- and disinformation and how that's just been regurgitated and just changed slightly over the years and turned into something that was completely made up. Right. right. And, uh, but really quickly back to the Myrna Henson story and this Paul Benowitz setup, because that's exactly what it is. It was a setup with this lady, Myrna Henson, to get the lore and the mythology rolling because they knew Paul Benowitz would tell everyone and this would snowball into a bunch of nonsense, right? So Henson, along with claiming to see the this large Goodyear blimp like craft, she also received, uh, she also said that uh, she recalled having uh, been given an implant while she was abducted by these aliens. So here's where all the alien implant lore comes from. Everyone, everything literally comes from this dude being fed missing disinformation from the NSA, the Air Force, and this military agent, Myrna Henson. Right. This was before John Mack. This was before Willie Strieber. This was before all of these people that came in and, and popularized everything that had been told by Paul Benowitz to all these people, right? So Sprinkle returned to visit Benowitz to then perform a, another regression with Henson to figure out more made-up nonsense, I guess. And he, he found Benowitz, uh, he was basically out of his mind. He was armed with a, with a pistol and a rifle, saying that he was concerned for his life that he was going to be attacked by aliens. These people were literally driving Paul Benowitz out of his mind to the point where he thought that he was going to be attacked by aliens, that the aliens were going to come down with the tractor beams and kill him. It's actually a very sad 
story here, but it's important to go over. And Benowitz armed up with all of his guns and his tinfoil to protect him and his family and Miss Myrna Henson lady that was sent to him by Gabe Valdez. And Benowitz thinking that uh, Sprinkle was an alien or whatever he thought that he was. He told him to leave. And then he contacted a hypnotherapist by the name of James Harder. Now, James Harder was popular in the UFO and contactee community because he was the person that did the hypnotic regression on Travis Walton in 1975, which I'm going to, I'm going to do a whole episode on Travis Walton because I'm just going to go down the row of all, all of these people that have popularized the, the UFO lore and myth. But Benowitz and James Harder came to the conclusion that Myrna Henson was under the influence of alien tractor beams. And they wrote these detailed instructions on how to use aluminum foil to uh, shield themselves. Right? This is literally where all the tinfoil hat stuff comes from. No one has any idea that it came from the government mis- and disinformation surrounding Paul Benowitz, convincing him that what he was seeing was extraterrestrials when it was advanced military craft, believing that he was in communication with extraterrestrials through his computer when it was really the NSA. So Gabe Valdez's son uh, later on commented on the whole Myrna Henson story and basically said that it was a, a big operation because there was uh, listening devices, tracking devices that was found on uh, Gabe, in Gabe Valdez's home. And he said, he basically came out and said that it was a very uh, well orchestrated op and uh, that it was pretty easy for them to pull off. Right? And it's very difficult to figure out anything about Myrna Henson because Myrna Henson is also the name of a famous actress and a model. So when you type in Myrna Henson into Google, all you're going to get is this famous actress and model who won uh, Miss USA in 1953. So it's practically impossible to figure out who she was. But I'm willing to bet, willing to bet money, she was sent by the intelligence community directly to Paul Benowitz. And it's the perfect cover, too. You use the name of somebody that is uh, famous, so you can cover up anybody actually doing any researching to said individual. But now we get into the full swing of this Dulce base and all the mythology and all the rumors and the theories and the speculation of the Duluth base all started because of the information that was given to Paul Benowitz by government mis- and disinformation, Air Force special agents, and this... Uh, military or government agent or whoever she was, Myrna Henson. So in December of 1981, uh, Paul Benhamwitz sent a letter to U.S. Uh, Senator um, Schmidt and explained that he knew the location of the alien base in northern 
New Mexico, northeast of uh, Dulce, New Mexico. And he knew someone in the military that had made a deal with the aliens several years ago, giving them the land and the cattle and uh, the apparent security uh, of safety to trade the alien technology to them for the land, the cattle, and and, uh, the abduction of humans. Uh, And another thing that was talked about in there was that the technology that supposedly the aliens gave the military was 30 years behind the current alien technology. And we've heard that repeated so many times throughout the community that it's uh, unbelievable, but it's all mis- and disinformation. So in 1984, Paul Benowitz again referred to this um, Dulce base and this conflict between the extraterrestrials and the military uh, that then led to the closure of this Dulce base, which is later regurgitated by people like John Lear, Bill Cooper, and who I was mentioning earlier, Phil Schneider, And now we understand where all these thoughts and these ideas and these theories come from, where all these stories come from that that's what Bill Cooper always talked about in the mid eighties, which popularized the entire myth and and the legends that a contract was signed between the government and extraterrestrials in exchange for technology. Bill Cooper just added that it was Eisenhower that made the contract and sealed the deal. It's changed it just slightly. And and Phil Schneider is a whole other story, which I'm going to be uh, covering in the future. But by 1982, Benowitz then started contacting other UFO researchers like Linda Moldenhow, John Lear, uh, Senators Harrison, Schmidt, and uh, began to spread this idea and these theories and these speculations regarding the Dulce base to others in the UFOlogy community. And boom, UFO mythology that came directly from the NSA and what I believe was uh, an intelligence agent and Myrna Henson and Air Force agents was born. Wow. All of this is covered and is very well documented. Uh, It was documented and detailed in a uh, UFO conspiracy book named Clear Intent, the Government Cover-Up of UFO Experience. Uh, It was also documented in uh, George Clinton Andrews' book, uh, Dulce-Based Legends of Extraterrestrials Among Us, and also in a uh, 1988 uh, story entitled UFO Base Found in New Mexico. Uh, Then in 99, the Albuquerque Tribune, uh, featured a mention of Paul and uh, Cindy's, uh, Paul's wife, uh, their 50th anniversary. Paul Benowitz uh, passed away in June of 2003. Uh, it was also documented in the 2005 book called Project Beta, the story of Paul Benowitz's natu- national security and the creation of the modern UFO myth. Uh, Mark uh, Pickerington's book uh, about the project, which also detailed it, details the entire 
thing called Mirage Men, which was published in 2010. Then the book was adopted into a 2013 documentary uh, under the same title uh, called Mirage Men, where um, former special agent of the Air Force, uh, Richard Doty, is on camera saying that uh, in the 1980s, he was uh, tasked with hoaxing documents and feeding false information to UFO researchers, including Linda Moulton Howell, Bill Moore, and Paul Benowitz. Wow. You think it's fair to say this constitutes an invisible war against the American public? That's what it seems like. Right. A boogeyman. And you always need a boogeyman. Yeah. Well, and it's a great veil for their covert operations against the American public. I mean, I was just having a conversation uh, recently with someone who talked about explicitly documents from the CIA calling it Invisible World War III and how they were using chemicals and different types of warfare against the American public. This seems like psychological warfare. It seems like uh, manipulation. And it's also... It's interesting because so many people who get attracted to this research, I think, don't necessarily understand the risks psychologically uh, that go along with spreading this information. You know, you as a you know researcher, myself as a researcher, you know, we walk into these subjects with a bit of separation in the sense that, you know, we understand our position in relation to the material. Whereas I think some people, you know, maybe through movies, maybe through, you know, things on the internet, they get attracted to these notions that they're, they've been implanted or they have memories that have been erased. And it, it, you know, again, like the title of my show is my family thinks I'm crazy. So I don't want to come off like I'm, you know, not being respectful to my audience in the sense that I understand there are people who who have, you know, really crazy things going on in their life. And, you know, when when you say, oh, you're just crazy, I mean, you're, you're being gaslit, right? We're not saying that. We're saying, hey, step back and reexamine these notions that, you know, there are aliens manipulating you. I mean, I've seen it myself in my personal life, even before I ever did the podcast. I've met people who, you know, they were off the deep end. And I was interested in what they're saying because they were, you know, using like references and keywords that I'm familiar with, but it fit into their, per whatever their unique schizophrenia was, right? I mean, it, that's, and it was really unfortunate to see someone so brilliant who was caught up in these really strange notions of aliens controlling their life and putting them in the position that they're in. And yeah, when you think about it like that and how these ideas become weaponized and can initiate this process of self-destruction in a person's mind, then you start to see it in its true form that, oh, okay, this is a psychological war against us. These, these alien ideas, these, you know, the people who, you know, put on a tinfoil hat, right? Like I have a, I have a hat with Faraday fabric on the inside, you know, 
nowadays, I think it's perfectly reasonable to wear something like that now that we know about Wi-Fi signals and all this stuff. But, you know, that notion was used, again, to uh, mock and uh, alienate, (laughs) no pun intended, anyone who got interested in this type of material. They'd say, oh, you're a tinfoil hat wearer, you're a crazy person. And that's exactly why Sam named the show tinfoil hat, you know, what it is because, you know, he's like, Oh, we need to take this back and empower the fact that no people are, are realizing something's really going on and they're not crazy for it. Right. So it works to towards the military's uh, advantage when there's this atmosphere of confusion, when they can easily pin the blame on the victim uh, who themselves is in fact delusional but they're only delusional in the sense that they aren't accurately assessing what is happening to them, right? And I think that's the big distinction here with this conversation. We're not saying people are mentally ill and everything that's alien is an illusion. It's all made up for for no reason. We're saying that it's being weaponized. At least that's what I'm saying. But please, Ryder, cor- clear that up because I, I think that's a really important distinction to make here, right? Yes, uh, weaponized folklore. Mm. Weaponized folklore is what I call it. And it's easy to manipulate people into false stories and mythology when you create the false stories and the mythology. And it doesn't help that over half the population is on some form of pharmaceutical medication. And that's a statistic from... 2014 to 2016. Right. Accurate. Uh, accurate reading, I believe, was 48% of the United States population is on some form of pharmaceutical medication. And where did those pharmaceutical medications come from? They came from the MK Ultra programs. Wasn't just wasn't just LSD. Wasn't just mushrooms. It tested antipsychotics on people. It tested antidepressants on people. It tested amphetamine, Adderall, Ritalin, all before it hit the public. So you couple that in with these frequencies that you're talking about that you wouldn't want to protect yourself with a uh, Faraday cap or some form of uh, protection or around your head, you you couple that with the pharmaceutical medication and the things that we're putting into our body, they can, they don't necessarily have to do this to you individually anymore. You do it from a distance, right? Because your defenses are already low. That's why I don't believe in any kind of regression. That's why I don't believe in any kind of Hypnosis. Hypnosis has been hijacked from the original purpose of what hypnosis is supposed to do. Hypnosis is supposed to be therapeutic. It's supposed to go back and like help you get over things, like help you get over addictions, help you get over some form of a traumatic event that happened to you in your past so that you can heal from it. But we've turned regression into 
figuring out about abductions, figuring about, about, about aliens, right? Being abducted by UFOs when that was never the intended purpose of it. It's been hijacked. And guess what? When you think that you've been abducted or had some kind of encounter with extraterrestrials, you go to a regressionist that's a part of this community, guess what you're going to find? You're paying them to tell you that you've been abducted by aliens and that you've been experimented on. A UFO flew over your house or they, they freaking uh, came out of the walls and abducted you when you were 12. That's what you're paying them to do. That's what their job is to do. Right? So we have all of these different things that are hitting us from all different angles 24-7, and it's hard to di- dissect each and every one of these things because there's so much going on that it just turns into a freaking 10-layer dip, dude, and you got to keep digging down into that dip and get to the bottom, get to those bottom beans, dude, those those freaking um, refried beans at the bottom. That once you get down into those things, start to make a lot more sense. And when I'm referring to mental illness, I'm referring to mental illness as the symptom of drug use. That's what I'm referring to mental illness as is it is a sub uh, it's a sub um, effect of drug use like methamphetamine like uh, Adderall, Ritalin like things of that nature right you're going into a psychosis is what it is and they basically did that with Paul Benowitz, but not with the drug factor. They just put him out of his mind with all these theories and all these, uh, uh, and, and you couple the drug use with these fantastic theories and these, um, all these conspiracies and, and the mythology of it. And people are under the influence of that drug. They're going to believe it. When it was never that to begin with. That's what I'm referring to as uh, with the the mental illness aspect of this. The mental illness comes from the the drug aspect. I've worked in mental health hospitals. I've seen people get into a drug psychosis. Like just out of their mind thinking that there's not even from, they're not even from the, the area they've traveled across 10, five, 10 states to get what they're, where they're at. And they're thinking that the government is tracking them, that the, the government's going to kill them and, and that there's a, a man in a hoodie in the backyard that has a gun. That if he walks outside, he's going to be shot. You know, they're delusions and it can be tracked back to one trauma, two drug use, and wild and uh, speculations and theories and mythology. You mix those up together, then you have a perfect 
recipe for things happening that didn't really happen. And your mind tricking you into believing something that happened that didn't really happen. And that's exactly what they did during the MKUltra programs. It traumatized them. They drugged them. They psychically drove them. They implanted memories that weren't real into their head. It's the exact same thing. And they've been doing it since the 50s. Well, and you made a really great point when you said that there aren't, there isn't a necessity to work on the individual. They've got it to the point where they can work on us on a mass scale. And that, again, as you're saying just now, is due to the drugs, right? And, you know, as somebody who attributes my own personal enlightenment to cannabis, I, uh, you know, I think it's a fine line. I don't necessarily uh, perceive cannabis as a drug in the same way some of the harder substances are. I wonder your your perspective on that, where you think cannabis fits into it all. But I think when people, you know, listening to this conversation who are, you know, well-versed in the UFO lore, well-versed in the alien lore, they might be thinking, well, okay, I can understand how the military can affect just a few people. They have, you know, they have the, the capacity to put an operation together and affect these individuals that are, have become famous in the ufology community. That makes sense. But they couldn't possibly have, you know, they can't possibly have, you know, caused every single UFO sighting or every single alien sighting. And I wonder if at this point, if it's not really necessary for them to be there at every single one, they just need to create this uh, sort of atmosphere of confusion around these subjects. And also, you know, as you put it so brilliantly, weaponized folklore, it sort of plays out in this predestined way when these instances take place, whether it's you know, accidentally stumbling upon some military operation, witnessing some military craft that you're not supposed to. When these folks identify themselves, there's a protocol in place to basically, dis, you know, disinfect any potential of them getting the truth out there or acknowledging what's really going on, right? It's like a protocol to sort of de, um, what's the right word, um, discredit. You know, because you can you can pull someone, you know, they identify themselves as someone who's seen something they're not supposed to. And then you pull them out of the the crowd and make them into this pariah and they go down this path of, of self-destruction. It's, it's like they don't even need to be really in the mix at that point. They they can kind of, uh, you know, be more efficient in their in their, you know, control paradigm at I hope I'm not just kind of rambling. Does that make any sense? It makes sense. I think that the example that I would give is what we covered here tonight with Kenneth Arnold and the, the misrepresentation and the misquote from flying saucers. It took on a life of its own. Everyone started seeing flying saucers. You know, just like Bud Hopkins in his book, Missing Time. After that book came out, Everyone started experiencing missing time or thinking that they experienced missing time. He also developed this thought and this idea of screened memories. Then people thought, oh, well, 
I need to get a regression to go back in time to see if that is really what I experienced or maybe it wasn't what I experienced. It's exactly like with um, Willie Strieber and his book Communion and the Gray Aliens. No one talked about Gray Aliens before that book came out. Very few people talked about Gray Aliens. But as soon as the, the, the book came out, everyone started seeing Gray Aliens. It's a, I've explained this many times, and I'm sure I've explained it on your show before as well. That it's egregore, it's an, it's an egregoric reality. What you put your thoughts and your energy and your beliefs into, you see more of that in your reality. So, all it has to do is get enough people to actually believe in it, and then that, regardless if it's real or not, it gives it a life. Gives it substance. It gives it weight. And that's exactly what has happened with Paul Benowitz as well. He gets all this mis and disinformation from the military, all the mis and disinformation uh, from uh, the NSA, all the mis and disinformation from the what I think is a intelligence agent in Rena Henson. Then he regurgitates that story to other people. Those other people believe it. They repeat it. Those people that heard those people from the repeated story, hear them talk about it, they believe it, and then you no longer need to do anything else. I mean, Richard Doty, in the documentary Mirage Man, was saying that he, uh, a lot of the things that he blatantly fed mis- and disinformation to people about he goes to these conferences and he hears the exact same thing that he's talking that he told to these people it just takes on a life of its own and once you've planted that seed that little bit of disinformation to one person and that one person gets other people to believe in it then you no longer need to do anything else you just sit back and you let the mythology and the speculation and the theories just compound upon themselves. I mean, you get people every day on some show talking about a contract with aliens. The government has signed this contract with aliens when there's no proof, there's no evidence, and we now know that it was made up mis- and disinformation that it wasn't real. But people are still acting like it's real and they're regurgitating it because the lie and the made-up mis- and disinformation is way more popular than the real thing. And people don't want to have these types of conversations that we're having here today because it's not fantastical. It's not mythology it doesn't uh, confirm the, the preconceived notions about extraterrestrials and aliens and the universe being so populated and all this advanced technology and these med beds and this anti-gravity craft it brings it all down to earth it brings it down to a uh, a level where it's understandable you know people like the fairy tales because it's not it, because you can't explain the fairy tales. So it lets their mind 
uh, you know, go off in that direction, which just fuels more speculation, more theories, and more nonsense. But that's pretty much how it goes. It's as simple as that. You just plant an idea in someone's head, then you watch that idea like root up like a plant. And you don't have to do anything anymore. You no longer have to actively spread mis- and disinformation anymore mm-hmm. because the people in the community do it for you. Right, yeah, and then new generations of researchers look up to those folks who are <laughs> spreading disinformation. Now, what do you make of today's current wave of UFO or UAP uh, talking heads? I mean, there's the uh, David Grush character, there's the Lou Elizondo character, there's, of course, the whole uh, nonsense with Tom I think that it's really literal, like, you know, something is coming down from the sky and giving these people knowledge, and this is where the extraterrestrial thing comes in. What if it's not that? What if it's just a, a new seeding of a new type of human? And I think that's where we're headed today, with the, you know, we're going to get a, in the next hundred years, we're going to have a new type of human. There's going to be a new human on the earth and if you create something new you create a new human this is all just speculation my personal ideas and my personal beliefs of what's going on here I don't have any not any factual evidence besides the incubators they really were there uh, in these babies in incubators but uh, what if that's what it is what if it's just the, the, the seeding of a new human human 2.0 because you create something new, then that effectively gets rid of everything that came before it. And if you, let's say you create a, a, a new internet, the old internet's going to be wiped. No one's going to know about the old internet in the future. As fast as our technology evolves, Apple comes out with a new phone every year that has a different freaking port on it. I mean, look at how, how obsolete our technology, like some of the old technology has become, right? People don't use floppy disk anymore. Come on, Mark, you got a floppy disk drive at your house? Use the link in the description to sign up now on Patreon or Substack to hear the entire episode with Ryder Lee. Ladies and gentlemen, that was our episode with Ryder Lee. Uh, I believe that was his fourth time returning on the show. Uh, I want to double check because I think I said third time. And that may be accurate because one time he was on the show with Jay Widener. So this is his third time returning alone, I think. But I just want to double check. One, two... Yeah, I guess so. So yeah, this is his third time appearing on the show 
uh, solo, but his fourth time appearing on the show in total. So, yeah, uh, Ryder is a friend. He is someone who is uh, very, very, uh, I think, um, detailed. I think he goes the extra mile when it comes to research. I think he goes above and beyond when it comes to connecting with folks who have firsthand and secondhand accounts of the uh, subjects he's researching. So he's a great source of information. If you haven't listened to his show, Raised by Giants, I recommend you go and listen to it for sure. Uh, in the supporters only section of this show, not only as you may have heard with the fade out that I'm going to start doing uh, from now on, uh, Ryder talked about today's wave of UFO or UAP researchers, and then we even ventured away from the UFO discussion entirely, and we talked about some of the aspects of the old world hoax. Ryder talked about the incubator babies and we both shared our, our differing and agreed opinions on uh, the world's fairs which Ryder has some very interesting thoughts on so please folks go over to the patreon or the substack now and you'll get access to the bonus rss feed that you can plug into whatever podcast app you're using already to listen to this i believe spotify even now allows for the uh, Patreon sync up, so you can go ahead and do that uh, seamlessly. And Patreon has a bunch of bonus stuff on there. I've got the video version of the show for supporters only, some episodes that aren't available for the public on my YouTube. And of course, I have uh, bonus episodes of shows that I do with Juan and shows uh, for the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast that. Uh, just stay behind the paywall. There's a few of them there, and I think I'm going to be adding more to that list as time goes on. And also you get early releases and so on and so forth, extensions to each episode like this one. So don't sleep on that. Support this show and support our guests and you know, do what you need to do with your finances, right? I mean, we, you got to take care of yourself first, but if you have some money to spare and you enjoy this content, you find value in it, send some value back my way and support the show and you won't have to listen to the ads anymore. So yeah, I am considering putting out less episodes a week, but the ad revenue is enticing. So who knows? I think it might just be two episodes a week. I know I was saying three for a while, but three is a lot. It's a lot to do. It takes a lot of time out of my week and uh, I think I'm just better at the podcast when I have uh, more time to think, more time to be in my own world. And if I have to put out three episodes a week, then I burn through my backlog and then I have to interview more guests. And then I don't really have time to, to do my due diligence to research each guest. I mean, you may notice some episodes, it does seem like I'm I'm winging it. And that's because I, I am indeed winging it. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't like that feeling. I think I'm competent enough to navigate most conversations. Um, but I still like to be prepared and have research done so I can ask um, questions that are supported with, you know, statements from the guests so that they can respond um, from a place that they're 
comfortable, familiar, and also I find that you get the best information out of someone when they respond to the fact that you've uh, done the research, right? I think people are smart enough to tell, and I've done enough interviews as a guest to know the difference myself. So yeah, uh, I want to do my best as a podcaster by the guests and also the audience. So I hope you guys appreciate that. And of course, if you like what I do, send some value back my way. Uh, There are ways that you can send a one-time donation to the show. Um, Excuse me. Venmo, uh, Cash App, PayPal, at Mystic Mark. That's about it for this episode. Big shout out to Ryder Lee. And I'll see you guys all wherever you are in the next episode. So have a great moment wherever you are in the now. MFTIC Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages hijack your perception Tricking the population with holographic projections We see through it The system is unraveling I'm astral traveling Through the library of the Vatican On a sacred journey I embark with the squad Forever spitting truth Like Mark on the pod Gotta know the facts Never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up In the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. You don't even know how powerful you are. We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade. I awoke in a deep underground military base. Zero recollection of how I got to this place. Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders must have been extracted when they crashed into us. Animal hybrids contained in the cages. A lion with the eagle head, monkeys with reptilian faces Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft, my getaway I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out, robbing for his plasma gun Hop in the ship, take the controls They highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light Fly into the sky, get flanked by six F-35s Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers, searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade <laughs>